Well, if you've been here uh, with us all summer, uh, you know that we are in what feels like part 438 of a uh, 600-part series on the book of Revelation. Uh, not quite that bad. Uh, this week and next week, and then the, the series wraps up. And then the Sunday after that, we're, we're calling it Kickoff Sunday. We're going to do some really fun stuff on uh, September, I think it's the 22nd or 23rd, whatever that Sunday is. Uh, you don't want to miss that. You want to let people know about that. Some really fun stuff. A new series will kick off that day as well. Um, but before we jump into the text that we're going to look at today, I want to give you a really brief uh, update about the change we made to our staffing structure over the summer and then just where we are financially and why we had to make that decision. Uh, the mission of the church, the, the church is a mission organization. We're a mission family. We are a mission uh, sent to the world. We, we want to make a difference in people's lives. And so uh, the church doesn't make a profit. The church builds people, right? So in other words, a, a business... Uh, what they're after is making more money. That's not a bad thing. That's good. It provides jobs, all of that. Our measurement of how successful we're doing is not the money we raise, but the people that we build. And so we, we aim everything at doing it in the words of Jesus, making disciples, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, who are able to do everything God uh, said that we can do. And so we want to make disciples who love God, who love people, who serve the world. And so uh, we ask on a kind of routine basis because we operate on such a razor-thin budget. This is a whatever based on whatever people give. Um, Lord, is this where it goes? If you were here a few weeks ago, we asked you, do that with your own finances. Lord, is this where it goes? Is this, does it need to go here right now? And uh, in the spring, I did a, a, and I sat down, I said, okay, we got to evaluate where we are because we're tight. What, what are we going to do? How's this going to work? I evaluated where we were as this staffing structure as the as pastor and a lead pastor and and I realized that we, we, have, we had two people who were basically full-time. Um, Deb, our custodian, was just under full-time. And then JR is our facilities director, full-time. We had two people um, who were full-time, basically, focused on our building and our facility. Nothing wrong with that. They did a great job. And, I, and then I looked and I realized we have in no other area, in worship, in kids, in students, in adults, in no other area do we have two leaders full-time paid. In each of those areas, we have a, a handful of people. Uh, we actually have three, four people who are part-time, less than 10, when I say that, less than 10 hours a week, one person under worship, one person under kids. Uh, but no, in no other place, the areas where we reach people and grow, did we have two leaders? And I went, wait a second. As the leader, can I... Can I say we're stewarding the money that everyone gives sacrificially in a way that moves the mission forward are we literally maintaining it's a really tough spot to be if you've ever been a leader and had to make those kinds of realizations and then decisions it's it's a tough spot to be and so i had consulted some people who are smart and and said okay what are we gonna what are we gonna do about this and uh so in this a couple months ago we went to the our facilities director and said hey listen come fall um, this position is going to become part-time. And we want to give you two months to find something if you don't want to take the part-time position. If you don't, we understand that. And if you choose to find something else, we're going to give you severance. And I'm so grateful. Found a great job in that two-month time frame. We were able to give severance as well. And so he's, he's doing great. Uh, but it's a, it's, a tough, it's a tough decision. It's a tough thing, a tough reality. Uh, because we're committed to doing everything we can to reach as many people as we can and allocate our resources to do that. Now, you may have said, okay, because uh, some people had this question, like, well, did you do everything you possibly could? Did you cut every corner? Um, we practice transparency. If you want to see our budget, we will show you our budget. There's nothing to hide. Uh, so if you want to see it, just ask me or uh, Chandra Ostrander or Lori Belcher or anyone on staff, and we'll make sure you can see that. We are razor thin 
Um, we're understaffed for a church our size, size by about three to four people in terms of leadership, people who are in worship, kids, students. Uh, most churches our size have more people in those areas reaching new people. Um, we're understaffed in those areas, and um, we have not given anyone a raise, me included, in six years that I've been here. Um, no one receives benefits, me included. Um, and for a church our size, everyone is paid, me included, on the low end of the pay scale. So I just want you to know, there was just nothing to cut. Nothing, nothing. So we're trying to reallocate those resources so that we can help us grow. So that's, that's a tough thing. If you have questions, um, here's my contact info. I think they're going to put it on the screen for you. Mm, there you go. There's my email, smarshall at reallifecc.org. That's the phone number here. You can get me at the office. Um, if you need that written down on those pieces of paper at the doors as you go out, it has my contact info there. I'm happy to answer any question you have. The worst thing that can happen in a scenario like this is for people to say, well, I think, and I think, and I think. Just telling you as honestly as I can how we got to where we are. So uh, there you go. I know that's not feel good, but now we're going to stand and read the scripture together, all right? Stand with me if you would. Uh, We're going to read this together. I'll read it aloud. It'll be on the screen. This is the letter to the church in Laodicea in ancient Turkey. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. That's a description of Jesus. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. All parents said, amen. (laughs) So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. As a, uh, as a pastor, I have a really, a really unique seat uh, to, to see people's lives. I see uh, people's lives in their absolute worst moments. And then I also have a front row seat to see their lives in their best possible moments. Uh, usually when someone comes to see a pastor, because when they schedule an appointment, what they're facing is they are against a wall and they don't know what to do, and they are struggling, and they are not sure what to do. And, and here's what I have found about everyone that, that's just true across the board, is that everybody is looking for some kind of way, some kind of confidence, some kind of faith in something to help them outlast life's storms. Um, we all know that trouble comes, we just want something to help us get beyond trouble, and, and faith, uh, one way to define faith is confidence or trust in God. Faith in God becomes a lens through which you see the world. It, it explains why things are the way that they are and that it lights the way. Everybody wants that. If you are a card-carrying secular humanist, you want the exact same thing. You want something that explains why things are the way that they are and you want something that lights the way. Now, what I have found that's really fascinating is that people will be in the exact same difficult circumstance and respond in totally different ways. I'll give you an example. I've many times been with someone when they have lost a parent. 
And what I've found is that there are uh, some people, when they go through that situation, they ask all the kinds of questions that all of us would ask in that scenario. Why is this happening? Am, am I being punished for something that I did? Why do bad things happen to good people? Everybody asks all those questions. And, and one person will ask all those questions, but that experience will drive them toward God. And then someone who's going through that exact same circumstance, same questions, same confusion, same emotions, that exact same circumstance will drive them away from God. Now, what in the world is the difference? And, and, and I, so I asked myself, okay, well, why is it that for some people it seems like faith goes wrong for them? Why do they not develop a faith that helps them to outlast life's storms? What, what happens? I remember the very first time that I had a, a doubt about my faith. I was, uh, I was in high school, it was early high school, and I was in English class, and we had to read one of those required books. I think it was Ernest Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea or something like that. And I, I was sitting on my couch at home, reading, doing my homework, reading this book. And one of the characters in the, the book uh, said this phrase, and it just sticks out to me, uh, you know, I tried faith, and it just didn't work for me. Now, you, you understand my story. I grew up, my parents were missionaries, my dad was a pastor. I, I don't remember a time that God, in some form, was not a part of my life. That didn't mean I personally knew God, but I was around spiritual kinds of things. Uh, and up until that point, I'd kind of lived a sheltered life, and I'd never thought, well, maybe, is, is this real? Is this thing really true? Is this, this was the first time that this question bubbled up for me, and, and, and I, I wondered, would I make it past this? Maybe that's right. Maybe, maybe faith doesn't work for people. Now, there are, I, what I've also found is I've read, I wrestled through all that and uh, watched other people wrestle through that, that there's some very common things that people come up against when they wrestle with their faith. And uh, some of those things are intellectual things, like how do I jive the Bible with science? And how do I know that Jesus uh, rose from the dead? How, how do I know that all of this is real? And those are genuine intellectual questions that you have to ask and you have to wrestle through if you're a thoughtful person. Uh, and I'll just give you a little side. In a couple weeks, I'm going away and, uh, for a few days, and I'm going to be m- mapping out messages for the next year, and I'm going to be putting out a survey, and I'd love your feedback on the things you would love to hear about, things that are kicking the slats out of your life and the people around you and what you need help on. If that's one of the things you say, man, I would love to know more about that, we will, I'd love to do a series about that. I've also found, though, that some people, faith doesn't work for them because they go through emotional things and, and they just don't know what to do with their emotions and, and they abandon then their faith. And I've found sometimes the intellectual and the emotional go together. But I want, I want to I focus in on, on two things that kind of operate underneath the surface and most people would not say, oh yeah, this is an obvious reason why I don't have a faith that outlasts the storm, but I see it happen again and again. And I think it's worth spending a few minutes talking about because one of them is what this, this passage talks about. But here's a very large reason that many people never develop the kind of faith that outlasts life's storms. It's this. They have a consumer relationship with their faith. Now, you know, uh, as well as I do, that uh, if you're like me, you're a DIY person, and you go to Menards, and you're looking for supplies. And I like to go to Menards when I see the big 11% off sign. And the reason I go there is because it says 11% off. Now, I always go across the street to Lowe's, and I price check to see if they're doing a better job. And I like when I go to Menards, because they're nice at Menards, and they're nice at Lowe's, too, but sometimes a little nicer at Menards. And I'll go to Menards, and I'll get my materials, and they can treat me wonderfully, and they can give me that 11% off that I never mail off and never get the rebate because they count on you to do that. (laughs) But guess what? The moment that it's cheaper at Lowe's, guess what? I have a consumer relationship with Menards. I have no commitment to Menards. It's all about what Menards can do for me. It has nothing to do with what I can do for Menards. I'm out the door. 
the minute it's cheaper across the street. I have a consumer relationship with them. Uh, recently, I, I flew to Dallas on Southwest Airlines to see my dad, and my dad has uh, the beginnings of Alzheimer's, and I had to go take care of some, some things with him. And, and um, I, I uh, wanted to change my ticket to come back a day later so I could take care of some more business and, and be with him for another day. And so I, I heard that Southwest is great because they're a great airline, and, and they, they waived the fee. So I went online, I tried to change it, and sure enough, there's a fee. And so I called them up and I said, hey, listen, here's the deal. I'm here, I'm a pastor, and I'm here taking care of my dad, and this really wasn't in my budget to do this. Is there any way that you would waive that fee just, just this one time? Beautiful response. This is why Southwest Airlines is the most successful airline in the world today. They said, you take care of your dad, we'll take care of the fare. Oh, yeah, right? That's awesome. That's awesome. But guess what? I have a consumer relationship with South, Southwest Airlines. The first time they lose my bag, I'm going to another airline. <laughs> I have a consumer, no matter how they treated me, I'll give them a few passes because of that. That earned a few points. And, but, but I have a consumer relationship with them. Uh, and this is what many people have with their faith. They they look at their faith like a vending machine and they're standing in front of the thing they think they need and they put in their quarter of prayer and they put in their quarter of buying a worship CD and they put in their quarter of going to church and they put in their quarter of serving somebody and then they're waiting on God. I hit the button, I put in the quarters. Why am I not getting the thing that I want? They have a consumer relationship with their faith and they're expecting God to do something for them. Um, Now, think about that metaphor for a second, because what that means is, is that we see faith as a mechanical interchange where we are standing on the outside using the mechanism to get what we want, and so faith becomes an end to our means, and the means is, I want whatever it is that I want, and that kind of faith is not the kind of faith that's described in the Bible at all. The way the Bible describes, the writers of the Bible describe faith is that faith is confidence and trust in God, if I would point you to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews is one of the letters in the New Testament. We don't know who exactly wrote Hebrews chapter, uh, the Hebrews uh, letter to the Hebrews. Uh, but in Hebrews chapter 11, there's what many people refer to as the hall of fame of faith. And it starts out Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And then it just lists all these people. And if you read through that list, what you'll find out is none of them had a vending machine relationship with their faith. In fact, you'll read things like, and some of them were sawn in two, and some of them lost everything, and they, but yet they put their confidence in God. <laughs> they had a faith that outlasted life's storms because they did not see it as a consumer relationship. That's one of the main reasons that people do not develop the kind of faith that outlasts life's storms because they have a consumer relationship with their faith. One of the other main ways, and this is uh, what this letter talks about, is that people have a tendency to accommodate their faith to the culture around them. And the way the Bible paints the world around us is it says, listen, the world around us doesn't really have much use for God. In fact, the culture that we all live in is how we do things minus the influence of God. And what happens is the values of any given culture will move us in a direction away from God. And as we accommodate to the culture around us and adopt the values of the culture around us more and more, what happens is that means that our faith diminishes in influence in our life because we only have room, you and I, for one, what some people call first thing in our life. The first thing that we say is the most important thing. There's only room for one. There's not room for two. There's only room for one. 
And if you accommodate your life to the values of the culture around you and adopt the values of the culture around you, your faith becomes, in the words of people today, when they go to a restaurant and it wasn't that great, and they say, how was the burger at the new place? They say, meh. Meh. In other words, what happens is you adopt the values of the culture around you, and so then other commitments take priority, and church is a back burner thing, and the scripture is not that interesting, you don't understand it, or you don't want to do the work to understand it, and you don't really spend time with other Christians, and the result is, is that you have a meh kind of experience of faith, and you become conformed without realizing it to the world and the culture around you. Now, the writers of the scriptures have a lot to say about this. One of my favorite is what Paul says to the Christians in Rome. He wrote a letter called Romans in the New Testament, and he said this in Romans chapter 12. We'll put it on the screen. He says this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, One other translation of that says it this way. I like this. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. When I was growing up, my mom had this, uh, this jello mold. I think everyone in America had the same jello mold. It had these little sections, and on the top was this little flower. And so no matter what she put into that mold, whether it was meatloaf or whether it was jello or whether it was pudding, when she would put it in the fridge and it would all congeal, no matter what it was before it went into the mold, when it came out of the mold, it looked exactly the same. And this is, this, is what, this is what Paul is saying. This is, what, this is what Jesus is saying to the church. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Don't be a conformist. This is the message of the Bible. Maybe you didn't know that. Don't be a conformist. Don't conform to what everybody's doing. You don't have to do that. Don't be a conformist. Uh, it, it's because our faith, our confidence in God, in God becomes the first thing, the principle that we stand on. Now, this, is, uh, this idea of accommodating to our culture is what this letter is talking about to the church in Laodicea. And right out of the gate, it's just this harsh critique. It's just hard to hear. And if you've ever uh, read this letter or heard this before, you know this is kind of a famous letter, probably of all the letters in uh, the book of Revelation that gets preached the most is, is probably this one. But he starts out and he says, listen, I know about you. I know your deeds and they're not hot and they're not cold. And I wish that you were one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, because you're meh, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, uh, this is, this is uh, what he was talking about. Everyone that read that letter knew what he was talking about. He was referring to the fact that Laodicea was in a valley. And on one side of Laodicea, on the other side of the valley, was a a town called Heropolis. It's still there today. And then the city of Colossae, the letter to the Christians in Colossae, Colossians in the New Testament, was written to some Christians there. And uh, you can go visit Hierapolis today. There are still hot springs with limestone cliffs. We've got some pictures of that. These are people there today. Uh, and there's another view here, as you can see, across the valley. And what the Romans had done is they, would, they took the hot springs at Hierapolis. They built aqueducts. Uh, these are some of the ruins actually leading out the valley toward Laodicea. And we've got a picture here of the actual aqueduct where the water would travel. And they had this elaborate system to get the hot water from Hierapolis. And then Colossae had the cool water. And by the time the, the hot water got from the hot springs of Hierapolis to Laodicea and the cool water got from 
the cold place in Colossae, it was this lukewarm, disgusting water. It's like when you drink coffee. Can I get an amen that coffee is supposed to be piping hot, right? And it's like a, it's like a sin for coffee to be like this tepid, worth it. You know how you've, you sat too long and you didn't drink your coffee and you're like, what is this? It's bleh. You want to spit it out of your mouth. Or you go out and mow the lawn and you're looking forward to a really cold bottle of water and you've got it sitting there and you took it out a little too early and maybe you looked at Facebook while you were mowing the lawn. I don't know. And you come back and it's like, oh, this is not cold. You, you, you want to spit it out of your mouth. Now, if you've heard this, uh, this passage preached before, you may have heard kind of the standard interpretation is, well, God wants you to be hot, on fire for Jesus. And, and if you can't be that, at least be cold and indifferent. Uh, but you're lukewarm, so don't be that. And I, I think there's some reality to that. Like, hey, have an on-fire relationship with God. But I, most scholars say it was more of, of the contrast of hot water has the ability to warm you and cool water has the ability to refresh you. And you're in such a state with your faith that is so meh that your faith doesn't do any of those things. It's just lukewarm. It's meh. It's nothing. It has no value to you, and it doesn't have the ability to help you weather life's storms. And then he defines, though, what's lukewarm. And I promise you what I'm getting ready to say to you will offend some of you. Don't worry. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I will offend your neighbor if you're here next week, okay? So stick with me, all right? This is what he says. This is how he defines what's lukewarm. He says, you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need things, but you do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, it is your money that is making you have a lukewarm, useless faith that will not help you to weather life's storms. Now, you may say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. (laughs) You can't talk about my money. What you got to understand is that God's accounting system and his value system are different than ours. And if you were to fast forward into the book of Revelation, uh, the, the picture that's painted of the new heaven and the new earth, uh, you know that w- the streets are paved with what? Do you know? Gold, right? They're paved with gold in the new heaven. It's the streets of gold. And most people hear that and they go, oh, you know, I'm poor in this life. I can't wait to go to heaven when I'm going to be wealthy. I missed out on the gold now, but I get it then. I'm not quite sure that's the point. I think the point that is trying to be made by John in the book of Revelation is to say, not that, oh, you're going to be wealthy in the, light, in, the, in the sweet by and by. It's to say, listen, what you think is important now is not important to God at all because what you consider important, God considers to be paving material. You say gold is, I got to have gold. God's like, well, that's paving right? It'd be like me saying to you, it'd be like me saying to you, hey, would you like me to drop off a pile of asphalt at your house? You'd be like, no, thank you. I'm good. It's, it's a change in the value system. God does not value what we value, and it's the lure of wealth that more often than not turns our faith into something that is basically meh. It's just this little thing that we dabble in from time to time so we can feel a little bit better about ourselves. Now, I got to be honest with you, I, I, I feel this. I, I feel this every time that I get into my, uh, my luxurious pastoral 12-year-old uh, Pontiac G6 and I listen to it putter down the road. And I think about my friends that I went to school with who own businesses and are CEOs and I go, well, I think I chose the wrong profession. <laughs> I, I have to be honest, that's, that's, a, that's a real thing. 
Um, the way the Apostle Paul talks about it, he says, there, there are people, he writes to Timothy, and he says, listen, there are people who they, they loved money, and because they loved money, they had faith. They started out a great race, but they loved money, and they made their life about the pursuit of money and more. And they wandered off, this, this is the language he uses, they wandered off from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Uh, Jesus said it this way, he said, listen, you cannot serve both God and money, it's just not possible. One takes the preeminence in your life. And what happens is that money can blind you to God. Because see, our culture, the way we look at money is not something that, that blinds us to anything good. Money is the ultimate good. In fact, when we talk about a person, we say their net worth, and we define it in purely financial terms. When I was growing up, uh, my dad's pastor, and we lived in a, a, church, a house provided by the, um, by the church, a parsonage, and um, didn't have, I didn't know we didn't have a lot of money, but um, one of my favorite TV shows to watch was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. I'm Robin Leach. And uh, I would just watch these things, and he would paint this picture of these people who live these luxury. I'd be like, wow, what amazing life. Well, that show's not on anymore, but you can go on Instagram, and they, they call them the rich kids of Instagram. They're kids who, uh, their parents are multi, multi, multi-millionaires, and they just go out and spend daddy's money. And this is a picture of some of them in some exotic location just blowing wads of money. Um, here's someone out on the multi-million dollar yacht like you do when you're in your early 20s with all the other multi-million dollar yacht owners. And then this is somebody whose parents threw them a multi, multi-million dollar wedding uh, we, we See, listen, in our culture, none of those things that I showed you are negatives. They're all things that we all aspire. If only I could be like that. Like that would be the ultimate good. But then you've got to understand that in God's accounting of things, those people are all building their lives on paving material. So here's, here's, though, what, here's what Paul says to people who have money, and I need to say it to you. We're going to put it on the screen. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So let me do my best to tell you what the scripture commands those of you who have money to do. Don't be arrogant about what you have. Some of you have money and you think you're better than other people because you have money. Somehow that, I've watched again and again, people, some people with money, not everybody, they think because they earned money that makes them smart at everything. It does not. You're not better than people because you have more money. Think about a teacher who in Indiana makes next to nothing. They work hard too. Are they not valuable? You're more valuable because you earn more money? Seriously? Don't put your hope in money because it could be gone tomorrow. Put your hope in God. And then Paul goes on and he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. This way they'll lay up for themselves treasures and, uh, as a firm foundation for the coming age. So let me do my best to command you to do what the scriptures do. If you have money, do good with your money. Bless yourself. Bless your family. Don't forget to bless other people too because God gave it to you as a resource to use to make life better. Take a cue from Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest men who's ever lived, billions and billions of dollars, and he said, I realized there was no good to me for the billions of dollars that I had made, made no difference to my life. So he tries to get super wealthy people to sign a pact saying they'll give away the majority of their income because to them, millions and billions of dollars giving it away is nothing. Be someone who does good with your money. Don't be somebody who just keeps money and hoards it for yourself. Share what you have. You're not self-made. There is no self-made person. That is a made-up thing. Spend a moment gratefully going through your life and making the connections to how you got to here, to here, to here. And I promise you, if you're honest, you'll recognize, well, this person helped me with this, and then this person helped me with that. 
And you'll find out there is no self-made person in this room. Don't think that your paving material will save you. Now, some of you are saying, well, I'm so glad that you're saying this to all those uh, rich people and sticking it to them. Thank you so much. I'm not one of the rich people. Well, you need to understand something. Uh, For Paul and the economic situation of the people in the first century, every person sitting in this room would be lumped into the category of the rich. So this is something all of us in this room, me and you included, have to do something about. So then he goes on and he says, so, counsel them to buy from me gold refined in the fire. In other words, get, get, uh, get what I say is valuable. Now, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but gold that comes out of the ground uh, is always impure. So it always has to go through a refining process where the impurities are burned off. Here's what I've observed as a pastor when pain comes to someone's life. That the people who see the pain in their life as a, a, a means by which God refines them and is refining them, they're the ones who last, and their faith goes on to be something strong that gives them something to hold on to in the storm. The people who look at their pain and see it as God's neglect in their life and abandoning them to their pain, they're the ones who don't last. And Jesus is saying to the church, listen, I'm about refining you. Like a parent, I, I, I rebuke and I discipline the ones that I love. No, 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 good, no good parent will leave their child to themselves. Every good parent will impose discipline and pain on their children. Every one of them. Find a bad parent. You know what they did? They just let their kid make all the decisions. No, 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 I don't want to make you, I don't want you to hurt at all. I'm not going to impose anything difficult on you. So then he goes on, verse 18, he says, so be earnest and repent. Now this is a word that's fallen out of use. Uh, but the word literally means, repent literally means uh, to, to change your mind. Uh, we might say have a paradigm shift, change your thinking, get rid of your stinking thinking. And the word repent, the, 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 the idea behind the word repent is actually a message of hope because it's God saying to you, you are never stuck and you can always change. And when you decide to change, you'll find out that God himself is available to help you with the change. <laughs> it's a message of hope when you repent. And here's, the, here's, here's what you need to understand. The church at Laodicea took this seriously because it was a significant church for hundreds of years to come. In fact, in the late 300s, uh, a couple hundred years after this was written, the church repented and there was a council that was held there. That The Bible that we have today, was can- the word is canonized, that it was set into its form that we have today in Laodicea because they repented. They changed their thinking. And, it sees, and then he uses this very, very famous, if you, at least if you've heard this before, a very famous thing. He says, I'm standing at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. And, and I grew up with this picture. Uh, it was somewhere in a church, and maybe you grew up with this, some version of this picture. And, and the way that it often gets preached is, you know, the people that are away from Jesus and don't know Jesus, that Jesus is standing at the door of your life and he's knocking and he wants into your life. And if you'll just open the door, then he'll come in with you and he'll be with you. And that's absolutely the truth. There's no question. If you're here today and 
and you don't know Jesus and you're not following, he's standing at the door of your life knocking. You sitting here this morning is a knock on you. When you hear a song, it's a knock. All that is true, but that's not actually who this was written to. This letter was written to Christians who had exchanged God's value system for the world's and they had put God outside their life, outside the door and said, I'll take care of my life and manage it the way I want and I'll accumulate stuff for myself. I just use faith as a way to comfort myself when things go really bad. I don't want, and Jesus is saying, I'm standing outside the door knocking. Will you let me back in? And when I come in, I'm going to eat with you. Now, I want you to hear this. <laughs> Jesus is not saying, I went to, I'm standing outside the door and I went to Longhorn and I, I bought steak and I got lobster and I'm, I'm waiting here because I, I paid for everything and I just want to bring it in to you. He says, no, I'm going to come in and you're going to share your resources with me. And in you sharing your resources with me and having an actual relationship with me, you're going to develop a kind of confidence that gives you the kind of faith that can weather life storms. <laughs> but if, if, if Jesus just stands on the outside of your life and you just live your life the way you want, I, it's a recipe for meh faith. And if you're like, well, I think that's my faith. Okay, well, this is the moment for you to change your mind. This is the moment for you in the words of the letter to the church at Laodicea to repent. So here's what I'd like to invite you to do. Uh, I, I know this is, you're like, wow, man, this is brutal. Next week is all about hope, so it's not going to be like this next week. <laughs> but we've got to take an inventory. We've got to honestly take an inventory. So I'd invite you to, to right now, um, maybe you bow your head and close your eyes and have your own personal moment. This is just a way for you to focus that way no one else is looking at you. And I would invite you to take an inventory of your life. Right now, is, is, is faith a vending machine and you're just kind of mad at God that you've, you've put in all the quarters and you've pushed the buttons and you're not getting what you want and you're just kind of mad about it? I want to tell you that that's where you are. The Psalms are full of people who say, God, why are you? Why are you? God can handle your anger. It's okay to say I'm really frustrated. But could you also say, God, I would like to move beyond a vending machine faith. To have confidence in you no matter the outcomes I'm getting in my life. I, I hear the knock at the door of my life and I'm opening the door. I want to let you in. I'm going to let you all the way in. Have access to my resources and me. And my hopes and dreams. And, and what do you need to change your mind about? Just tell God, I need to change my mind about this. And I want to do it today. I want to repent. God, thank you that you give us a, a means by which we can change and be different and be transformed and be better. That you love us in our brokenness, but you love us too much to leave us there. You love us when we don't understand faith and we think it's a, a mechanism by which we get things from you. Uh, you love us then and you don't condemn us then, but you don't want to leave us there. And you love us when we, we exchange, uh, without realizing it, our, your values for the world's values and we, we prize our money and we hold it on as our own thing that we won't share with anybody. Uh, you, you love us even there, but you love us too much to leave us there. And so, uh, God, today, as, as a church, we repent. 
We want to be like the church at Laodicea where um, generations from now there are still people who are meeting you, having their lives transformed by you, becoming people who serve and love their communities and who have a faith that lasts. We want, we want generation after generation to come out of this church because of the repentance we do in this room right now. So God, receive our humility and receive our need for help. (laughs) Thank you that you're available. And everyone who wanted a kind of faith that would outlast life storms, that is available from the God who made you and knows how to give you the power, who rose from the dead, because he now has the power to give that kind of faith to you. Everybody who wanted that said, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. Uh, We always leave you with a blessing, and you'll see people around you holding out their hands. That's their way of saying they'd like to receive that. And uh, if you're comfortable with that, great. If you're not, that's okay too. Just receive this blessing. You're sitting out to love God, to love people, to serve the world in Jesus' name. Hug someone, tell them you love them. You need prayer? Uh, Right down front on our prayer team.